Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hello, you may leave. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If we could bring the house lights up, that would be awesome. That way I can see. Luke chapter 22. So back in the early to mid-90s, when I was in my early to mid-20s, I worked as a customer service manager at a large catalog showroom department store, and I was in charge of hiring all the new employees. I was also in charge of dealing with all the upset customers, and so I have some funny stories to tell you about that for another day. But it was interesting because um, this job attracted a lot of young people that were around my age, all of us in our 20s. And there was a time that I was really shocked when I had to do a job interview. This woman came in to interview with me, and she came in dressed very provocatively, very inappropriately, and basically throughout the course of the job interview, she pretty much came on to me the entire time. It was the most awkward thing I'd ever been involved in. It was very, very highly inappropriate. And so in that job, there was a lot of temptation around me because there were a lot of young girls that were my age. And at that time, I started working there. I hadn't been married to Dawn yet, but we had been married probably maybe about a year or two. And this woman that I had hired, she started coming to me and confiding with me that she was having problems with her husband. And so she knew I was a Christian, and so she wanted to kind of get my opinion. And so I began to kind of talk with her. And and after a while, I kind of realized that she was not necessarily looking for advice from me. She was looking for something in me that her husband was not meeting. So it moved from me innocently giving advice to her actually flirting with me. And for a while there, I was blind to it. And then I finally kind of realized what was going on. And so I went home to my wife and I said, Dawn, I think this lady at work is flirting with me. You need to be aware of this because I think that she's overstepping a bound. I think that there's something going on here. She's always bringing up her marriage. She's always talking about her husband. And so I'm just not going to talk to her anymore. I'm not going to bring it up. So the next day at work, this woman comes over and starts to talk to me about her husband, and I finally just said, you know what, I can't talk to you anymore about your husband. I can't talk to you anymore about your married life. This is a boundary that I'm not willing to cross, and so I'm just going to have to, you're going to have to go find somebody else to talk to you about your problems. Well, she got upset, and she got very flustered, and it put me in an awkward position because I was still her boss, and she got embarrassed. And that working relationship was never really the same after that. And after a few weeks, she went and found another job. But if I hadn't been attuned to the situation and talked to my wife, I could have potentially stepped into a landmine. I could have stepped into an area of temptation that I would have probably had some major problems. Those could have been moments of weakness for me. And to this day, I praise the Lord that he gave me insight, he gave me a wife, he gave me the fortitude to be able to not walk into that and not to fall into that temptation. He gave me the strength. And I wonder if you've, and I'm sure you probably have like me, have you experienced those moments of weakness, those moments of temptation, those moments when you were right on the edge and and if you would have gone over the edge, it would have been catastrophic. We've all had those moments of temptation those weaknesses. 
Now, why do I bring up moments of weakness, moments of temptation, those times that try our faith? Because in our passage today, it focuses on Peter and his greatest moment of weakness and temptation. So let's remember the context of where we are in Luke. Satan has already entered Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, the Last Supper, i.e. the First Supper. Then as we looked at last week, surprisingly, right on the heels of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, the disciples begin to argue about who's the greatest. They get into a knockdown, drag-out fight as far as who's the greatest, and Jesus says, let me give you the definition of true greatness. It's serving. It's being humble. It's having Christ-like humility. And right on the heels of this, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and their future moment of weakness. Now, he's talking to all the disciples, but he laser sharply focuses in on Peter. And so let's read together Luke chapter 22. Let's start in verse 31, right where we picked up off last week. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you do not know me. So let's explore this passage of Scripture this morning, and I want to look at three truths. This is going to be a little bit of a difficult passage of Scripture for me to preach because there's some concepts in here that I don't have fully worked out in all of my theology. And don't expect to have kind of a nice, tidy understanding of the Scripture here because this is some interesting material here that I don't know if we can fully grasp. But here's the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. The first thing we see is that Satan attacks believers to deny their faith in Christ. Satan attacks believers. He's attacking Peter here. He's demanding that Peter be sifted like wheat. It's very interesting, that word demanded. It only shows up here in the Bible, and it shows up no other place. It's a very unique word. It's, it's like Satan is asking permission of Jesus to do this, but he's asking with ulterior motives. He's like coming to Jesus and demanding. He can't demand from Jesus. He still has to ask for permission, but he's asking for permission to sift Peter like wheat. Now, one thing you need to realize is the devil cannot do anything without the permission of Jesus. He's got to get permission from Jesus before he can do anything. And he wants to sift Peter like wheat. He wants to shake his faith. This comes back from the Old Testament imagery of Amos chapter 9, verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. What does it mean to, sh to sift Peter like wheat? What does that mean? Well, it means to, that Peter would deny his faith. Peter's faith would fall would fail. Notice what Jesus says there. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you 
like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That word fail there means to totally go bankrupt, to run out, to fail miserably. We must remember that Satan is a real enemy. He's a real spiritual being, and he really does attack believers. His goal is to try to shake up your faith so that you'll deny the faith. You'll begin to doubt. You'll begin to look at the culture around you and say, now wait a minute, why am I believing when I'm believing when all the culture believes this? Is what I'm believing really true? So what does the Bible say about the devil? The word Satan means enemy, adversary. The word devil means slanderer. John 8, 44. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Satan's the father of lies. It's out of his own character. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil has schemes, crafty, cunning schemes to deceive you. 2 Corinthians 2.11 So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. There's two words there, outwitted and designs. Outwitted means that basically Satan is like this greedy, insatiable person that wants to defraud us. He wants to take advantage of you. And he's got designs, he's got schemes, he's got fiery darts that come at you. And oftentimes... We don't recognize this because 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says, No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's subtle. He's crafty. He's deceiving. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's a lion. He's prowling around looking for someone to jump on, to pounce on. And then Revelation Chapter 12, verse 9, just captures everything about Satan. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. He's a liar. He's the great red dragon. He's the serpent of old. He's a deceiver. He's got schemes. He's got cunning. He's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to sift Peter and you and me like wheat. But we must realize that Satan has to get permission from God before he can do anything. Now what's the parallel to this passage? Do you remember the book of Job? If you go back to Job chapter 1, let's just read this together. It'll be on your screen. Job 1, 6-12. I know this is a long text, but just hang with me here. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come, Satan? Answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, just a side note there. This picture Satan is kind of a restless wanderer. He's wandering across the earth just like a restless wanderer. And he has to show up before God and present himself. And God says this. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan is not an equal and opposite force with the Lord. He's subservient to the Lord. He's a servant. He can only do what the Lord allows him to do. And notice what Satan says here about Job. He says the only reason that Job worships you, Lord, is because you've given him all this stuff. The only reason that Job worships you is because you've blessed him. Take away all that stuff and he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, Satan, you can take away everything from Job. Just don't touch his life. So God still puts a limit there on Job. And that's surprising that God allowed Satan to come against Job. In a sense, you could say that Job was being sifted like wheat the way that Peter was to deny his faith and turn his back on God. Now, this may be troubling to you. This may be very troubling to you that God allows or permits Satan to sift you. Don't ask me the question why God does it. Why does God allow it? It can be also be very assuring because if God is going to allow Satan to attack you, Satan can't go beyond what God has ordained for him to go beyond, and God always has your best in store. So we may not understand all this issue related to spiritual warfare. Why God allows Satan to come against us. We may not understand all that. But one thing we do know is that Satan has to obey Jesus. He has to ask permission. He can't go beyond the bounds of what God has ordained. And so Satan comes and demands here for Peter. I have demanded, Satan says, to sift Peter like wheat. And the first thing that we see here is that Satan's real. He's cunning. He's a real enemy. He does indeed attack believers. And what's his goal? He wants to see us fail. He wants to see us royally fall on our face and fail miserably, to abandon our faith. The second thing we see here, though, is the good news. Jesus, as our advocate, ensures we'll stay faithful to the end. Notice what Jesus says there. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But what does Jesus say? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I want to ask you a question. Have you thought about the difference between Judas and Peter? Why did Peter remain strong and Judas fail? You could say it this way. Jesus was praying for Peter, but he wasn't praying for Judas because Judas was not one of his disciples. He was a fake. Peter was truly a believer. Peter truly belonged. Judas was not. Now, here's the scary thing about it. 
Jesus will allow Peter to be attacked. Jesus is greater and stronger than the devil. Jesus will pray for Peter. He will intercede for Peter, but he still allows Peter to get attacked. Now, on numerous occasions, Jesus is praying for his disciples, his true disciples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he's arrested, Jesus is praying for his disciples, his true disciples. Listen to, this, listen to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I'm praying for my disciples that they may not fail. One is going to fail. That's Judas. He's the son of destruction. It was to fulfill scripture. He's not one of mine. But if you're truly one of Jesus's, he will pray for you. So think about this. If Jesus prayed for Peter, Jesus also prays for you. Now you think, no, wait a minute, this is a weird concept. I've never heard this before. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now in heaven, interceding on your behalf. That means praying. He's interceding. He's, he's a go-between. He's a mediator. Now, the Bible teaches this. Jesus is giving us grace in heaven right now so that we will not fail. Romans 8, 34. Who's to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what happens when your conscience condemns you? What happens when Satan comes to you and starts to accuse you, or even your heart begins to condemn you? Can those accusations stick in God's courtroom? No. Why? Because Jesus died for you, he rose for you, and he's interceding on your behalf. There is no condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't be condemned. You can't be held guilty. If Satan comes and tries to condemn you, Jesus stands in your place and says, those accusations don't stick. I'm the mediator. I'm the one that died. I'm praying for my child to last, to endure. This was read earlier uh, by Mickey, one of our elders, during the time of confession, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he, is talking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is, is able to save to the uttermost. That means completely, perfectly, absolutely, once and for all. Now, what's Jesus doing right now? Have you thought about that? What's Jesus doing right now? We talk about Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose again, he went back up to heaven, he's coming back one day, but we often don't think about what's Jesus doing right now before he comes back. He's already died, he's already rose, he hasn't come back yet, so what's he doing? Is he up in heaven twiddling his thumbs? Is he playing wordle with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit up there? What's he doing? No. He is interceding at, our, at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. Now, what's he not doing? 
He's not doing a second work for our sins because he's already died on the cross. That's why he's seated. The, the work is done. It is finished. And he's not somehow sitting there begging God to accept us. God, please accept these people. I, I really hope you accept these people. No, Jesus already paid the price for us to be accepted. What it means here is this. He's providing ever-present help for us when we face temptation. He's giving us strength. When we face pressures, when we face temptations, when we're faced with, are we going to abandon our faith? Jesus is there praying for us that we would not fail the way he prayed for Peter. If you're truly one of his children, you're not going to fall because Jesus is always making intercession for you. He's always there praying for you, interceding for you, giving you grace, sustaining you. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John's pretty honest here. He says, okay, I'm writing to you that you don't sin. Please don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate. We have a go-between. And he made propitiation. That means he, he absorbed God's wrath in your place. He died in your place. And so when you're accused or when you sin, you have an advocate there that stands and he pronounces you forgiven before God's throne. Here's the issue. Peter did not fail because Jesus was praying for him. It wasn't because Peter was all that. It wasn't because Peter was strong in and of himself. It wasn't because Peter was this powerful man that was so committed. The only reason Peter did not go the way of Judas is because Jesus prayed for him. Jesus sustained him. Jesus gave Peter the grace to come through on the other side those three denials. And Jesus does the same for us today. He holds us in his grip so that we do not fall away. Now, why does he allow spiritual warfare? I don't know. You come to me and you counsel with me. Why am I being attacked by Satan? I don't know. Why am I going through this struggle? I don't know. Why is it so painful? I don't know. But here's one thing I do know. Satan cannot do anything to you that God has ordained for you not to go through. He has to get permission. So whatever you're going through, it had to come through the hand of the Father. And he knows what's best. So he may be doing this for your growth and for your good. I really don't know. But through this temptation, through this spiritual warfare, through this attack, God is sustaining you to rely more upon the Holy Spirit in the process. He's leading us to depend upon the Spirit. Jesus would not allow Peter to be attacked to the point where he would be totally lost. And how do we know that? What does Jesus say here? Peter, when you repent and come back, do you see it there? Verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, that's the Greek word for repent. When you've turned again, when you've repented, when you've confessed and you've grieved and you've repented, then strengthen your brothers. Here's what I don't understand. Jesus basically says to Peter, Peter, I'm going to allow Satan to attack you. 
and you're going to fail miserably. But I'm not going to let you fail so miserably that you deny the faith. You're going to repent. You're going to come back. And when you repent, I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers. I'm going to take this painful experience that you've gone through. I'm going to take this miserable failure of sin, and I'm going to use it for my good, and I'm going to use it to have you, Peter, that's gone through this, strengthen your brothers. Now think about this for a moment. Peter did fail, didn't he? Three times. Rooster crowed. He denied Jesus three times. There's no denying that. In John chapter 21, they're gathered around a charcoal fire. And if you remember the scene, all the disciples are there. And here's Jesus. Here's Peter. And Jesus looks to Peter and says to him three times, what? Do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, second time, do you love me? Oh, this is excruciating. Peter's thinking, why is he asking me? Third time, do you love me? Now, why does Jesus ask three times? Because he denied him three times. Jesus forgives Peter. Jesus restores Peter. And Jesus looks in Peter's eyes and says, listen, Peter, you failed miserably. But you've repented. And I've restored you. Now go feed my sheep. Strengthen your brothers. Be an example of a man who came through on the other side victorious because I have sustained you. Now, how would Peter strengthen his brothers? All those other disciples are probably looking at Peter thinking, ooh, I don't know about that guy. He failed miserably. Was it, is, what do we know about Peter? Is the end of the story for Peter that he denied Jesus three times? What's the end of the story for Peter? How did Peter strengthen his brothers? He stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the first Christian sermon and 3,000 people got saved in the power of the Holy Spirit. That strengthened the brothers. He witnessed to Cornelius, who was the first Gentile convert in the book of Acts. He wrote First and Second Peter, two books in the Bible, and most of his material was used for the Gospel of Mark. And so Peter emerged as one who repented. God used his failure to bring him to a point where he could strengthen his brothers. So think about it this way. God never wastes a sinful experience that you go through when you repent, repent to bring you back as an example to help other people. I don't understand it all. I don't understand why Peter had to go through this. Why Jesus allowed him to be sifted. All I know is that Jesus prayed for Peter. Peter repented and he came back and it wasn't because Peter was all that. It was because Jesus was all that. Jesus was sustaining him. Jesus was preventing him from going the way of Judas. But there's a warning in this passage. Peter's not there yet, okay? Here's the warning. This is the third thing we see. Don't be lulled into self-confidence in your struggle with sin. Don't be lulled into self-confidence or overconfidence. Notice what Peter says in the next verse. <laughs> Peter, you've got to love him. You're going to deny me three times that you don't know me. Look at verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you don't know me. I'm ready to follow you everywhere, Jesus. I'm never going to betray you. I'm never going to deny you. I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to go to death. I'm all in for you, Jesus. He says the same thing in John's gospel. John 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Listen to Peter. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? (laughs) 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. You see the overconfidence in Peter? I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. If there's one guy that's going to stand by your side, Jesus, it's me. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, but Peter, the rock. I'm going to stick to you to the end. I'm going to die for you, Jesus. I'm going to go to prison with you. I will be with you till the end. Until a little girl says, aren't you one of the disciples? I don't know the man. And Peter cusses, and then he hears the rooster crow. He talked a great game, but when the hour of trial came, he fell because he was overconfident. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Trust in your own mind, you're a fool. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick, who can understand it? 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. You know this intuitively, but we need to be reminded. There is an unholy trinity at work, alive and well in your life. What's the unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And you need to remind yourselves often that these three will come against you at all times. Do you remind yourself often that the devil is a roaring lion looking to devour you? He wants to sift you like wheat. He's cunning. He's looking for an opportunity to pounce. Do you remind yourself of how enticing and alluring the world is? This world system, everything you see in this crazy, ungodly world is trying to drag you in. And young people and children and youth, you are swimming in idolatry and depravity, and you don't even realize it half the time. It's pulling you in. And not only that, you have Satan coming against you. you got the world coming against you. Well, what's the third person of the unholy trinity or the third thing? It's your own flesh. Your own flesh is dragging you away. Your own lust and your hearts are dragging you away. You need to constantly be reminded that you are battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you're not as confident as you think you are. You're not as secure as you think you are. The moment that you think you've got it all together, the moment you think, it's never going to happen to me. I'm never going to fail. I'm going to stand. I'm powerful. No temptation is ever going to come against me. I am a rock. The moment you start having that overconfidence is the moment that you're most susceptible. See, here's the point. We are weak. We are frail. We are easily tempted, and we are prey for the devil. And we will never make it on our own. The moment we think we will make it on our own, we are sunk. Listen to Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, If ever it should come to pass that the sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul at last would fall a thousand times a day. Did you hear what what Spurgeon said? If you could fall away from the faith, you would. And not just once, but a thousand times a day. And why would you fall away a thousand times a day? Because your soul is fickle. Your soul is weak. So if left to yourself, you would fall away from the faith a thousand times a day. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus won't let that happen. He won't let you fall away. You'll struggle. You're fickle. 
You're sinful, but Jesus is praying for you that you not fall all the way. You may get attacked. You may go through temptation. But if you're truly a child of Jesus and he's your advocate, he will sustain you to the end. He won't let you fall. If you could, you would, left to yourself, but you won't because he won't let you. He gives you grace. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful to sustain you to the end. Guiltless. To get you to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If not for the sustaining, powerful grace of Jesus in heaven right now praying for you, you and I would not make it. We would not make it to the end. But Jesus loves us so much that he's praying for us that we would make it to the end because he's our advocate. We're too proud and we're too self-sufficient and too weak to do this on our own. We need Jesus. Listen to our confession of faith. This is from our confession of faith, Emmanuel. Listen to how it beautifully expresses this. Even though many storms and floods rise and beat against us, Yet these things will never be able to move us from the foundation and rock to which we are anchored by faith. The light of the love of God may be clouded and hidden from us for a time through our unbelief and through the temptations of Satan, yet God is still the same. We will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where we will enjoy our purchased possession for we are engraved in the palms of his hands and our names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Storms may beat against you, They may be hard against you. And Satan may come against you like a roaring lion. But if you're truly a child of God, those things will come, but you'll be solid on the anchor of Jesus, your rock. He will not let you be moved. You may sway every now and then, but he's not going to let you ultimately fall off the rock and be lost because he loves you and he's praying for you and he's sustaining you by his grace. And it's a constant battle. I'm not going to stand up here as your pastor and lie to you and say, you're never going to struggle with sin, you're never going to battle with Satan, that it's going to be easy roses. No, it's going to be a battle. You know why? Because in the third chapter of Genesis, God promised it's going to be a battle. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, they were tempted by the serpent, what does God say to Satan in Genesis 3.15, third chapter of the Bible? God says, I will put enmity, that means warfare, enmity, warfare, struggle. Between who? Between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What this is saying is this. There's going to be constant warfare where Satan is going to try to nip at God's people. Satan knows he can't get to Jesus because Jesus is going to stomp him like a snake. So what does Jesus do or what does Satan do? He tries to nip at God's people. If I can't get to Jesus, I'm going to get to God's people. I'm going to try to bruise them. I'm going to try to nip them. I'm going to try to grab them. And Jesus says, this is going to be a constant warfare, but one day I'm going to crush the head of Satan. Now, he did crush the head of Satan on the cross. 
but Satan's still an active enemy. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. 1 John 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Our enemy may attack us. Satan may try to come at our heels and nip at us and attack us and tempt us. But Jesus prays for us. And Jesus sustains us. And Jesus strengthens us. He will never let us fall. And on that final day when he comes back, and I'm waiting for that day. He's going to send Satan to the lake of fire forever. Once and for all. The battle will be done. But until that day, there's constant warfare. So we need to rest in the grace of Christ. Trust in our great Savior. Let us have the confidence today that he's praying for you right now. And let me ask you a question. Have you thought about this? When Jesus prays, does his prayers ever go unanswered? That would be weird. For Jesus' prayers to go unanswered? No. What Jesus prays for always gets answered. And if Jesus is praying for you, those prayers are always going to be answered. He'll keep us to the end. He's the sovereign king. He's worthy to be praised. So I can't think of anything better or more exciting to come to the Lord's table this morning. I know we had the Lord's Supper two weeks ago, but we're having it again today. This is a time for us just to rejoice in what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, dying in our place, giving us heaven as our great advocate. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to celebrate the wonderful beauty that Jesus prays for you. You thought about that? Jesus prays for you that you might not fall. So let's go before the Lord this morning and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together because we have a great Savior who will keep us to the end. Would you spend just a few moments in silent prayer preparing your heart to take communion this morning? So I, I have to admit, I don't, I don't really understand all the implications of this passage of Scripture. It, it's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of mind-blowing to think that there's this spiritual war going on and that you pray for us. You're our advocate. You're our, our intercessor in heaven. The, the beautiful thing, Jesus, is I don't have to understand it. I can just receive it as truth. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you are praying for us. You are interceding for us. You're sustaining us to the end. You're holding us in your grip. You're making sure that we won't fall beyond repair. And Lord, the, the devil may attack us and you may permit that, but Lord, we know you're doing it for a purpose and it's always to draw us closer to you and for you to receive the glory. And so as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, as we take the elements into our mouths, as we take the bread that's your body of thanksgiving and we take the cup which is the new covenant in your blood as we take these elements into our mouths 
may we remember what the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's through the taking of the Lord's Supper that we receive nourishment spiritually from you, Jesus. The Lord's Supper is special, Lord Jesus because it reminds us of how you nourish us, how you sustain us. And so thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live in us, to encourage us. So may we celebrate your victory, celebrate the fact that you've crushed Satan, and one day you will send him to the eternal lake of fire. And we love you, Jesus, and we praise you for being our great king. It's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.